another perspective on recent clinical research on management of head and neck cancer, I met with Dr. Robert Haddad, who began by commenting on one of the most interesting recent developments in the field, the emerging role of HPV infection. The human papilloma virus, also known as HPV, is the virus that is a cause of the majority of cervical cancer in women. We know based on recent information that this virus, HPV-16, is also a major cause for oropharynx cancer. So this is specific for tumors of the oropharynx. And what I mean by oropharynx, these are tumors of the tonsil and tongue base. This is not applicable to cancer of the larynx or voice box or cancer of the oral cavity or cancer of the tongue. So this is specific for oropharynx, meaning tonsil and tongue base. These patients are typically young. They are in their 30s or early 40s. They are non-smokers or non-drinkers, and they present with fairly advanced presentations. They have big lymph node metastasis to the neck and they have big primaries in the tonsil or tongue base. These tumors are highly responsive to chemotherapy and radiation. And what we would say right now is that we know that the prognosis for these patients that have HPV-related oropharynx cancer, their prognosis is much better than a patient who would have a smoking-related oropharynx cancer. So prognosis is better. Right now, we are treating these patients with the same therapies we would use for someone who is not HPV positive, meaning we would still treat that patient with surgery or chemotherapy or radiation. But my expectations is that a few years from now, we will be having a different discussion about how we treat these patients. And more likely, these patients do not need to be treated the same way. They don't need to be treated with the same modalities we are using right now. And what I mean by that, we probably can treat these patients with a lower dose of radiation. We might not need to use as much chemotherapy, for example. And more importantly, the big question is whether we can treat these patients with a antiviral therapy, whether we would be able to treat them with a vaccine, for example, or with a treatment directed against HPV without even using chemotherapy or radiation. And this is where the research is going right now. And I'm hopeful that in the future, we would be able to treat these patients with much lesser aggressive therapy. But we are many years away from this right now. Overall, what fraction of head and neck cancers are thought to be associated with HPV, and how has that been changing in the last five or ten years? So what I would say in terms of the oropharynx patients, 50% of the oropharynx cancer we think right now are related to HPV. This entity is increasing in incidence. There is some evidence to suggest that the number of patients who have HPV-related oropharynx cancer is increasing. A lot of the data is coming from Europe right now showing that. We have also data in the United States showing that. So, you know, oropharynx cancer is one of the few cancers where the incidence is rising. As you know, many of the cancers over the years, we've seen some stabilization of incidence or decrease in incidence. Unfortunately, for oropharynx cancer, we are seeing an increase in the instance of HPV-related oropharynx cancer. This might have to do with the maybe changing sexual practices and the acquisition of HPV-16. I think many people think of oral sex, for example, as a safer way of having sex. 
And what we have seen over the past decade is a rise in the instance of oral sex, mostly because of the HIV epidemics. I think people, when the HIV epidemic has started, have started thinking of oral sex as a safer way of having sex. And by having that correlation, we potentially are seeing an increased number of infection with HPV. And with that, a rise in the instance of HPV-related cancers, oropharynx being one of them. That is being looked at more carefully right now in big epidemiology studies. Now, within the HPV cohort, is it about equal men and women? Yes. And again, the thinking is this is oral sex transmission? It's one of the major risks why HPV will be transmitted. I think, you know, looking at the recent data about HPV, I think when we look at those patients, there's this correlation with what we consider to be high-risk sexual behaviors, oral sex being one of them, history of multiple sexual partners being another, young age of intercourse. So any of those high-risk sexual behaviors is correlated with increased risk of infection with HPV and subsequently an increase in the instance of oropharynx cancer. This has been documented and reported in the last publications by the Johns Hopkins Group in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2007, looking at the epidemiology of oropharynx cancer and HPV. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other issues that you mentioned, and one was the issue of anti-EGFR therapy. Maybe we could start with a paper that you were one of the authors on that was just presented at the ASCO meeting looking at cetuximab plus chemotherapy. Right. We actually have looked at the combination of TPF induction chemotherapy, and by TPF, this is the combination of docetaxel, cisplatinum, and 5-FU. And we look at the combination of this three-drug combination with cetuximab in patients with locally advanced head and neck cancer. So cetuximab, or Erbitux, is an antibody that targets EGFR. This antibody is currently approved by the FDA in two indications. Number one, in combination with radiation in patients with previously untreated head and neck cancer. This is based on the Bonner study published in the journal in 2006. And also cetuximab, the second indication is the use in patients who have what we call platinum refractory head and neck cancer. So to build on these two indications, cetuximab is currently being looked at in other settings. One of the settings is in combination with induction chemotherapy, and that's what we have presented in ASCO this year in 2008 in Chicago. And we looked at the combination of cetuximab with TPF in those patients with locally advanced disease. And we were able to show that this antibody can be combined with induction chemotherapy safely. The doses that we have used are cetuximab 250, the standard dose. 5-FU, 850 milligram per meter squared daily, given continuously over four days. Taxotere given on day one at 75 milligram per meter square and cisplatin at 100 milligram per meter square. So we were able to combine this regimen and the early results are very promising, but obviously this data will need to be confirmed in a larger study. And that's one of the studies that we are currently working on with MD Anderson with Dr. Merrill Keyes. So this antibody also has been combined with another induction chemotherapy regimen and that's the combination of carboplatinum and taxol. And Merrill Keyes from MD Anderson presented that data last year in ASCO in 2007, where they combined Erbitux with carbotaxol induction chemotherapy before radiation starts. So this is one of the settings where this antibody is being looked at, and this is in combination with induction chemotherapy. The other setting where this antibody is being looked at, and this is very important, is how do you combine this antibody with chemoradiation? 
you know, unfortunately, the study that led to the approval of Herbitox and had neck cancer did not use chemotherapy. It was a radiation plus cetuximab combination. And one of the big questions that we and others have right now is how do you combine this antibody, cetuximab, with concurrent chemoradiotherapy? And that's what RTOG is looking at. This is the radiation therapy oncology group. They're currently performing a large phase three study that's going to enroll more than 700 patients. And in this study, they're going to combine chemotherapy radiation with cetuximab and compare that to radiation plus chemotherapy. So it's a straightforward randomized phase three study comparing chemo RT to chemo RT plus cetuximab. This is RTOG study 0522 that's currently ongoing and will answer a very important question, which is how much does the antibody add when you combine it with concurrent chemoradiotherapy? In that RTOG study, what's the chemotherapy backbone? So in that study, chemotherapy consists of bolus cisplatin at 100 milligram per meter square to be given on day 1 and 22 with a radiation regimen that's what we call a concomitant boost radiation. So patients will receive four weeks of once daily radiation and two weeks of twice daily radiation. And during that radiation course, they will receive two doses of high-dose cisplatin, 100 milligram per meter square. Now, what do we know about chemoradiation with cetuximab in terms of safety, either from this study or other studies? So for this study, the data is not available yet. This is an ongoing study. There have been previous efforts to combine chemotherapy, radiation, and cetuximab. And I think the biggest effort came from the ECO group, where they combined radiation with carbotaxol erbitux. And actually, that data was also presented in ASCO this year and previously presented by Dr. Wanabu from Rhode Island. And essentially, they were able to show that you can combine radiation therapy with carboplatinum, taxol, and erbitux in these patients with locally advanced disease with quite successful results. Obviously, these were phase two studies. We cannot draw a lot of conclusions right now. What we can say that the combination was feasible. The other effort came from Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Dave Fister performed a phase two study where he combined platinum radiation and Herbitox, just like RTOG is doing right now. That was a small study that unfortunately had to be stopped early because of increased rate of toxicity that was not expected. Even with those early toxicities, the overall results of that study published in JCO actually showed very promising more than 70% rate of local control and ultimately cure for these patients who receive these therapies. Unfortunately, I think they were a problem with patient selection, and some of these patients enrolled on these trials ended up dying from toxicity, lung toxicity, or heart toxicity. So the study was stopped early and could not be completed. But the overall data, I would say, was promising for RTOG to consider this randomized phase 3 study that's currently performing. So really, summarize the chemo RT plus Herbitox. We have two models. One is the platinum radiation with Herbitox from Memorial in New York. And the other one is the ECOG data with carboplatinum, taxol, Herbitox, and radiation. And that's from the ECOG data. I think the combination is, in my mind, the next model of therapy that should be looked at. And that's what's ongoing right now. What do we know biologically about what's going on? You know, we hear about radiation sensitization, and, and it's kind of hard to really put your finger on so many different drugs in terms of what actually is going on. What do we know about cetuximab and radiation therapy and chemo together right. biologically? I think biologically, there's no question that radiation plus cetuximab is highly synergistic. The Bonner study clearly showed that when you added cetuximab to radiation, you improved both local control and survival. This actually was a very 
important finding from the Bonner study. So the combination of radiation plus herbitox is synergistic. We also know from animal studies, when you combine radiation, chemotherapy, and cetuximab, the apoptosis rate you get, the cellular kill you get, is much higher than either modality alone or in combination. So also we know from the animal studies and from cell line studies that the combination of chemotherapy, radiation, and cetuximab is highly synergistic. My expectation is that this combination that we are seeing right now in the RTOG study would be also synergistic, and we would see an effect of the antibody on chemoradiotherapy. Now, going back to the issue of induction with cetuximab chemotherapy, can you talk a little more specifically about exactly what you found in the paper that your group reported with the TPF, and then how that compares specifically to the data that was found previously with the carbotaxel cetuximab? So what we have performed is a phase one study where we dose escalated the 5-FU dose. So we gave a fixed dose of cisplatinum, fixed dose of taxotere, and a fixed dose of cetuximab. And we dose escalated 5-FU from 700 milligram to 850 to 1,000. And at 1,000, we ran into problems with GI toxicity, likely from the 5-FU. So we de-escalated to 850 and declared 850 to be the MTD or the maximum tolerated dose. So the recommended phase two program from this study is going to be 850 milligram per meter square per day continuous infusion of 5-FU along with the taxotere and cisplatinum on day one and cetuximab on a weekly basis. Now, this combination, we've only enrolled patients with fairly advanced disease, big primaries, big neck disease. And so far, when we presented this data, we've only had one failure locally, and all the other patients are continued to be in remission and are doing quite well. So this was a phase one slash two effort. So at this point, we're not going to draw too many conclusions except to say that the combination is feasible and safe and needs to be studied further in phase two and phase three. The MD Anderson group reported a combination of carbotaxel-cetuximab. That combination logistically is easier to deliver because you're only giving weekly therapy for six weeks. You're not giving continuous infusion 5-FU. You don't need a portacat to do that therapy. So logistically, it's an easier therapy to give. And the results from Merrill Key's group actually is quite encouraging. The big question is how does these two regimens compare in terms of efficacy? I think when they were tested both in our institution and in MD Anderson, they were highly effective. Right now, we need to compare them head-to-head, and that's one of the protocols that's currently being discussed with MD Anderson is to perform a randomized phase two study where we would compare TPFC to PCC. So that's really, in terms of clinical trials, that's going to be coming in the next six months to compare these two regimens head-to-head in a randomized phase two study. Now, there's been a lot of excitement about the issue of KRAS and mainly colon cancer in terms of cetuximab, panitumumab. What do we know about KRAS and other predictors, EGFR, in head and neck cancer? Unfortunately, KRAS is not mutated in head and neck cancer, so we don't have the same data that you have seen with PMAB and cetuximab in colorectal cancer. So that's not going to be, unfortunately, a marker we can use to decide who gets cetuximab or any other EGFR inhibitor. In terms of the EGFR expression itself, EGFR is widely expressed in head and neck cancer, and it's not a marker we test for because everyone pretty much has overexpression of EGFR. So right now in 2008, what I would say is that we don't have the same predictors that you would have in lung cancer with the tyrosine kinase mutations 
or in colorectal cancer with KRAS mutations. And what we see in head and neck cancer right now is we don't see those KRAS mutations. KRAS is not mutated in head and neck. And because of the high level of expression of EGFR, we don't use that marker to decide on who gets an EGFR inhibitor or does not. What about correlation with rash? We do see a correlation with rash. Patients who develop a skin rash clearly have a better prognosis. That's been documented with all of the EGFR inhibitors right now, with cetuximab and with gefitinib and erlotinib. So all of these EGFR inhibitors, when we see a skin rash, there appears to be a better prognosis for these patients. What do we know about panitumumab and head and neck cancer? So panitumumab really is early in development in head and neck cancer. We actually also have presented at the ASCO meeting this year, our phase one slash two study combining carboplatinum taxo radiation plus PMAB. So instead of a carbotaxel radiation, we've given a carbotaxel PMAB radiation. And our early data is very promising. We've treated patients with early stage disease on the study, primarily stage three patients with low volume disease, both at the primary site and in the neck. And what we've seen so far is excellent results with this early data. This remains to be confirmed in a larger phase two and phase three study. I'm not sure right now what the strategy is in terms of further development of panitumumab in head and neck cancer. It is not clear to me right now whether this drug will be taken further into a phase three. I think the company has not decided on a strategy yet for the development of panitumumab in head and neck cancer. There are a couple of studies ongoing with PMAP, but most of these are phase one or phase two studies. Can you talk about what you consider some of the reasonable evidence-based strategies that can be used outside a protocol setting right now in locally advanced head and neck cancer? So this is an excellent question because obviously most of the patients are not treated on clinical trials. Most of the patients will be treated in community hospitals or offices where there's not an access to a clinical trial. So what I would say for the practicing medical oncologist, if you see a patient with locally advanced head and neck cancer where you don't have a clinical trial open, I think the first thing that needs to happen for that patient, we need to have, obviously, a correct staging for that patient. And for those patients where you perceive there is a high risk of distant failure, and what I mean by that, for those patients where you perceive a high risk of distant metastases, and those are the patients that have N3 disease or N2B or N2C, for those patients, the options would be to use of sequential therapy which is the use of induction chemotherapy followed by concurrent chemoradiotherapy. This is based on the TAX-324 study published in the journal last year. That's one option for that patient. The other option is to give that patient concurrent chemoradiotherapy with bolus cisplatin every three weeks during radiation. That's considered by many to be the standard of care for locally advanced head and neck cancer. So for patients with locally advanced disease, I would say you have two options right now, either concurrent chemoradiotherapy or sequential chemoradiotherapy. If that patient is not going to tolerate chemotherapy, if you have a patient with a borderline performance status, someone who you might perceive some compliance issues, someone who refuses chemotherapy, I think we have enough data right now to suggest that that patient should receive a combination of cetuximab plus radiation, because we know that for that patient, that combination is superior to radiation only and does not necessarily increase your toxicity profile Outside of the skin reactions you would see, you're not going to see neutropenia or febrile neutropenia. You're not going to see a lot of nausea or vomiting. So for that patient, I would give that patient cetuximab radiation. For the patients that is in a good performance status, I think the options right now are concurrent chemoradiotherapy or sequential chemoradiotherapy. What are some of the other research questions that are being looked at in head and neck cancer? 
One of the issues that's of interest right now, obviously, is cytoprotection, which is the protection of the side effects of therapy. And I think one of the major advances that we have seen over the past decade is the use of IMRT radiation. So IMRT stands for Intensity Modulated Radiation Therapy. And what that means really is that you're given a more focused way of radiation to treat the tumor versus the normal tissue. And by doing that, the major advantage you get is really lower rate of xerostomia or dry mouth. As you know, xerostomia is a major problem for head and neck cancer patients. If you're not making enough saliva, you end up with severe and significant dental problems. It also affects your ability to swallow and to eat. So there is a big advantage in getting more saliva at the end of therapy. And I think IMRT is one of the major advances we have seen over the past decade And the penetration of IMRT, at least in the United States, is very high. And most of the cancer centers right now and even private offices do have IMRT as a way to deliver radiation. And there's some evidence that when you give IMRT radiation, you end up with lower rate of xerostomia. And by doing that, you have obviously better quality of life. So in terms of cytoprotection, I think IMRT is really the major advance we've seen in the past decade and targeting xerostomia in particular. You know, I don't think IMRT is particularly better than standard radiation for cancer control, but I think it's clearly better in terms of getting the patient at the end with lower rate of xerostomia, and by having that, having a better quality of life. So that's really one of the advances. The other, obviously, is to look at the other targeted agents. We've discussed extensively EGFR, but clearly there are other receptors of interest in head and neck cancer. One of them, obviously, is VEGF, or the vascular endothelial growth factor. I would say that Avastin is currently being looked at in head and neck cancer in combination with EGFR inhibitors and also in combination with radiation therapy. I know Dave Brizel at Duke is currently doing a study where he's giving Avastin and chemotherapy during radiation with an EGFR inhibitor. So he's combining EGFR plus VEGF plus chemoradiotherapy. And there are other VEGF inhibitors being looked at. Many pharmaceutical companies have oral VEGF inhibitors being looked at. Zactima, for example, is one of them. Zactima is a dual EGFR and VEGF inhibitor being looked at. Erlotinib also continues to be looked at. It's an EGFR inhibitor. There's a new class of medication or a drugs called the CMET inhibitors, and CMET appears to be an interesting target in head and neck cancer. And there are a couple of agents right now being looked at in head and neck cancer, also CMET inhibitors. The next thing that's now being looked at is the role of the other targeted agents in head and neck cancer, whether it's a VEGF inhibitor or a CMET inhibitor, or maybe other types of EGFR inhibitors. So this is really where we're seeing some progress. I would also say that we are seeing some new interest in novel surgical techniques. Obviously, we've spoken today about chemotherapy, radiation, new drugs, but also there's some renewed interest in some of the novel surgical approaches with the use of laser surgery or the use of robotic surgery. These are highly specialized techniques, only available at certain cancer centers right now. But the goal of these is really to do the same thing you would do with chemoradiation, achieve organ preservation. At the end of treatment, you end up with some organ preservation. I think we have many years before those will be widely applicable in the United States at least, but there's some renewed interest in some of these newer surgical techniques. 
You mentioned 6474 Van Detnib. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about the mechanism of action? And also, you presented some work at the ASCO meeting at this, if you could talk about that. So, Van Detnib is actually a very interesting molecule that targets VEGF in particular and also has some weak EGFR inhibition. And my interest, my main interest in this drug, and along with other people, is really the fact that this drug also targets the RET oncogene. RET, which is an oncogene that we find in patients with thyroid cancer, specifically in patients with medullary carcinoma of the thyroid. This is a cancer that's obviously quite underserved. There's no drugs approved for this cancer when it's spread. So I presented the data with vendetinib in patients with medullary carcinoma of the thyroid, the familial type. Those are patients that have the RET oncogene mutations, and we've looked at this drug, which is an oral medication that's taken on a daily basis. And we've looked at it in patients with metastatic disease, and we've seen a response rate of 16%, which actually is encouraging in this disease where obviously nothing else has shown to have any activity. There is also a completed randomized phase 3 study with vanditinib and thyroid cancer in medullary carcinoma of the thyroid that's enrolled more than 250 patients. That study is completed, and we are expecting the results of this trial by the end of this summer. And obviously, this will be a very important study for this particular type of cancer. Really, the major role of this drug right now is the fact that it does inhibit RET. I know there's always some data that's been presented for lung cancer with vandetinib that appears to be promising in combination with docetaxel. We are currently performing a study in head and neck cancer with vandetinib and docetaxel. That effort is ongoing. So the idea here is that this is a drug that works on multiple targets, VEGF, EGFR, RET, along with others. And that's why it's the interest in looking at it in lung cancer and head and neck cancer, and in particular in thyroid cancer, where you have the RET oncogene mutation. Now, I assume that RET is not an issue with head and neck. Correct. It's primarily a thyroid cancer problem. What about bevacizumab with chemotherapy in the induction situation? I think really right now, that is not an option that anyone should be using outside of a clinical trial. It's a question that's being looked at by the Chicago group. There's some early data that's encouraging. I would strongly discourage anyone from using this combination right now outside of a clinical trial. With bevacizumab, there is a risk of bleeding with these VEGF inhibitors and head and neck cancer, one of the cancers where you have to worry about bleeding. So I think right now it's a study question, the role of bevacizumab in head and neck cancer. It's being looked at also in combination with erlotinib, from the University of Chicago, Everett Volks printed that data, and they showed some early data with a response rate close to, I believe it was around 15%. So it's a combination that's being studied in clinical trial. I would not recommend it be used outside of a clinical trial right now. What do we know about the EGFR TKIs in head, neck, or lotinib, gefitinib? Unfortunately, gefitinib has not shown big promise in head and neck cancer. As a single agent, it gave us a low rate of response rate. When it was compared in phase 3 study to metotrexate, it was not better than metotrexate. Actually, we saw the same survival, the same response rate, and maybe with a higher rate of bleeding. So what I would say right now, gefitinib itself, as a single agent, would likely not have a big role in head and neck cancer. It is now being studied by ECOG in combination with docetaxel. That is an ongoing phase two study with Iressa and Daxotir through ECOG. So that's for gefitinib or Iressa. For erlotinib, also as a single agent, I don't think it will have a big role going forward. One of the questions that's now being asked is when you combine erlotinib with chemotherapy, how does that compare to chemotherapy? This is really based on the MD Anderson data that was presented last year in ASCO by Ed Kim, where they combined taxotere, cisplatinum, and erlotinib, the three-drug combination in recurrent disease, and they saw a very promising activity in a phase two setting. 
So right now there's a consideration to take this three-drug combination and compare it to taxotere-cis-platinum alone. So one of the studies being considered right now is taxotere-cis versus taxotere-cis-erlotinib. So again, for these TKIs, I think their role as single agents is going to be very limited, but they might have a role in combination with chemotherapy. That being looked at right now. It seems that in almost every part of oncology, there's a lot of translational work, tissue correlation work, genomics, proteomics. What's going on in that respect in head and neck cancer? I think right now, the data, most of the focus has been on human papilloma virus. As we've discussed early on, try to understand the genomic profile for these patients. It does appear they have a completely different genomic profile than a smoking-related head and neck cancer. That's really where a lot of work is being done right now. That's really what I would say in 2008, where most of the focus is being looked at right now. Now, How easy or difficult is it to document or culture HPV from the oropharynx? And are there sort of chemo prevention or intervention trials trying to prevent the head and neck? Chemo prevention has been a difficult area to look at, really. I think right now there are very few efforts ongoing on chemo prevention, meaning those patients that you see in the clinic with dysplasia or leukoplakia, what we call pre-malignant lesions. I think some of the work is being done with COX-2 inhibitors. Dong Chin at Emory has an interest in chemo prevention, has been looking at actually a combination of EGFR plus COX-2 inhibitors, drugs like Celebrex, for example, and as a chemo prevention tool for these patients. I think those efforts are early right now. There's no definitive data about how active this combination will be in chemo prevention. So right now, outside of advising patients to stop smoking and drinking, which are the major risk factors for head and neck cancer, really, I mean, that's, I think, the best chemo prevention we can offer patients right now. How easy or difficult is it to culture HPV from the oropharynx? It's not difficult to culture it. I think what has to be done, you have to look at this on the biopsy specimen itself. If you look at saliva, it's hard to find. We actually have tried to look at saliva from patients who have HPV-related oropharynx cancer, and it's not been easy to actually culture from saliva. So what's being done right now is you look for HPV via PCR or via ISH, on the biopsy specimen itself. When you do this, actually, it's not hard to find. It's an easy test to do. I'm sure you see a lot of patients as second opinions that have been seen medical oncologists. You're interfacing with medical oncologists. I'm sure you give a lot of lectures to medical oncologists. What are some of the common questions they ask you about management of head and neck cancer? So really, the questions that are often asked and when do you apply sequential therapy versus concurrent therapy versus cetuximab radiation, that's one of the common questions that we hear, and I think we've addressed this early on. We were also often asked about management during therapy, you know, management of side effects, what's the role of the feeding tube for these patients? And that's an open question right now. I think many institutions put the feeding tube up front for these patients before they start radiation. And they do this to avoid having to go in and stop the treatment. Because as we know, if you stop the radiation, the cure rate goes down significantly. The other argument here, and not in trying to avoid the peg up front, is that in many institutions, they want to push the patients to swallow for as long as possible during therapy. Because we know that if patients eat during therapy, if they use their throat, they're less likely to develop stenosis, esophageal stricture, and long-term swallowing problem. So we have two schools of thoughts right now in the U.S., one that believes in feeding tubes up front to avoid radiation breaks, and one that really wants to put the feeding tube when patients really need them. I think what I would say to the medical oncologist and to the radiation oncologist, if you work in an environment where you are able to put the feeding tube immediately when you need it, 
then you can wait. It's okay to wait. By doing this, you are pushing the patients to swallow during therapy. If you know it's going to take you two or three weeks to get a peg in, then put it up front because you don't want to end up in a situation where you have to stop the treatment for the patient because you cannot get a feeding tube. One of the other questions we are often asked, and that's a very important question, is what is the role of a neck dissection after chemoradiotherapy? As you all know, this has changed over the years. In the past, what we have done is every patient who came to us with an N2 and N3 neck disease, at the end of chemoradiation, we would recommend a neck dissection for that patient regardless of what happens during chemo-RT. Meaning we were doing a lot of neck dissections on patients who have a complete response to chemoradiation, and we end up with a negative specimen. This is changing right now, and our approach right now is at the end of chemoradiation, we would wait eight weeks before we do a PET scan and a CAT scan on patients. And if that PET scan is clean, if the patient has radiographic evidence of a complete response and the clinical evidence of a complete response, we actually have not been doing a neck dissection on these patients. We have been observing them. This is very important because a neck dissection does add toxicity to the treatment. And if you can omit a neck dissection for the right patient, then you will save a lot of side effects for that patient. So that's really one of the changes in how we manage the neck at the end of chemoradiation. And that's a very commonly asked question. How do you address the neck? In terms of when you do a PET scan, I would encourage that you don't do the PET scans too early. If you do them early on, you're going to end up with a lot of false positives. You have to wait at a minimum eight weeks before you do a PET scan on these patients after concurrent chemoradiotherapy. So these are really one of the more common questions we hear. Neck dissection, what's its role in head and neck cancer? When do you do it? Do you do it in everybody? When do you put a peg? Do you put a peg? Those are common management issues in these patients. Anything that you want to add to what you said today? Well, I think one of the things that also is an important topic is the use of induction as a chemo selection, is to use induction chemotherapy to decide on who are the patients who are likely to benefit from an organ preservation approach versus a surgical approach, and use that induction chemotherapy as a tool to select those patients. So that's an ongoing question, a study question that's being looked at. I would add there are two currently ongoing phase three studies in the U.S. comparing sequential therapy to concurrent therapy. We didn't talk about that today. The Paradigm study and the Side study. The Paradigm study being run out of the Dana-Farber comparing sequential to concurrent and the Side study being run out of University of Chicago comparing concurrent therapy to sequential therapy. So essentially what we have shown over the past decade is that concurrent therapy works and sequential therapy works. What we're doing right now, we are comparing these two modalities head-to-head in randomized phase three studies. Both of these studies are ongoing and hopefully will answer the question of concurrent versus sequential once and for all. Any predictions on what's going to be seen? I think I'm someone who uses sequential therapy in many of my patients who have locally advanced presentations. My prediction is that sequential therapy will be superior, but until we do the studies, it's going to be hard to really make any definitive conclusions.